Hello, and welcome to the Writers' Forum, a weekly production of WRBH Reading Radio. I'm the owner of Tubby & Coo's Mid-City Bookshop and your host, Candace Huber. This week, I'm talking to Sam J. Miller, the Nebula award-winning author of The Art of Starving and Blackfish City. A recipient of the Shirley Jackson Award and a graduate of the Clarion Writers' Workshop, Sam's work has been nominated for the World Fantasy, Theodore Sturgeon, John W. Campbell, and Locus Awards, and reprinted in dozens of anthologies. A community organizer by day, Sam lives in New York City. His newest book is Destroy All Monsters. Welcome, Sam. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you. It's a pleasure. So you have written a lot of short stories. You've written books for both adults and young adults at this point. So mm-hmm. is your writing process different based on who you're writing for and what type of thing you're writing? Not really. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, this is a great question because lots of writers have really different answers for it. I am blessed slash cursed. Um, with having like really just one basic brain that is the sa- operating the same all the time. So I know I can grasp like um, intellectually and from a marketing perspective that like young adult is different than regular adult and short stories uh, are different than novels and science fiction is different than fantasy. But my brain does it all the same. Um, and I often don't really, you know, I, especially when it comes to genre, uh, I'll write a science fiction story that will be published as horror because the publisher thinks it's horror. And I'm like, sure, great, whatever. Um, so, you know, I've I've been pretty fortunate to be able to just charge ahead with whatever crazy project I'm working on and then let my editors or readers tell me what is wrong with it <laughs> or how to make it better, how to make it more what it is. I mean, obviously, when, you know, when we're talking about writing novels, um, writing for young adults, um, there's there's different rules that apply, just like there's different rules that apply for science fiction versus horror. And um, I definitely, you know, I'm really fortunate to have a really fantastic editor at Harper Teen who gives me a ton of support in figuring out how to tell stories that will resonate with young readers, um, which, uh, you know, even though my brain still thinks I'm a teenager, um, it, it hasn't been a teenager in a while, so it doesn't really... Uh, you know, it, it might not be uh, conscious of some of the differences between me and them and now and then. Yes, I feel that really hard because I also feel like I'm still a teenager and am way far away from being a teenager. But I don't yeah. really feel any different than I did when I was 16. So exactly. I guess exactly. hopefully I know more. Right. Me, <laughs> right. Right. If, yeah. If I make, uh, you know, if if I make more if i make less bad decisions now it's not because i've gotten smarter it's because i've gotten lazier and the energy (laughs) required to to make a bad decision is usually more Uh, so so yeah i i I would not say that i've matured much um that's uh, totally fair my grandma used to say she's like you know i know that i'm like 80 years old but i don't feel any different than i did when i was 16 i was like well i guess that never changes (laughs) Yeah, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. I don't think that's universal, though. I definitely feel like there's people who uh, definitely feel their age or, or, you know, notice things changing or maybe they they focus on it more. Um, But I do think I'm fortunate because um, I don't I do know that I have friends and and family members who, who, who don't seem to feel the same way I do. 
Sure. I mean, I guess I feel it sometimes, but most of the time I'm I'm pretty the same as I'm always. Yeah, your body, your one's body will tell will tell right. will remind one that that one is dying at all of the, at all opportunities, and those opportunities get more and more as one. That one is ages, absolutely so. true. So, what about writing young adult appeals to you? Like, why why did you choose to write YA? Um, you know, I, I've always loved YA as a reader. Um, even back, you know, when I was a, I mean, I'm 40 now. When I was a young person, um, young adult looked really different. Um, this was pre-Harry Potter. Uh, there was not a ton. I mean, it was definitely a thing, and it was happening, and there was great stuff being written. Um, but it was not the phenomenon that it is now. Um, and but I still loved things like Judy Bloom and uh, S.E. Hinton and. Uh, the Chocolate War, um, and, uh, you know, I, I hadn't really, my brain didn't really process those as, like, a separate universe of stories from, like, you know, Ray Bradbury and Stephen King and the other stuff that I was reading because I was a, you know, little kid who wanted to feel like a grown-up. Um, but I I think that I, as an adult, um, I realized that there's an honesty to young adult that doesn't exist or is much harder to come by in in adult in in, in, in novels that are that are marketed for for adults. Um, you know, I remember reading The Perks of Being a Wallflower, and there's a scene where the narrator talks about his friend Patrick, who's gay, um, and how Patrick told him about the first time he had sex. And there's just there's like a level of detail and honesty that I think that adult writers would be too cool um, or too I don't know. Um, it, 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 I had never seen anything like it. And I realized that, you know, young adult doesn't mean you can't talk about sex. Um, it doesn't mean you can't. It doesn't mean that things have to be cleaned up or sanitized or, or made palatable to, to, to innocent, helpless teenagers, right? It, it often goes there in a way that um, books for grownups don't. I think that when you're writing for adults, often there's like this idea that the world makes sense. And that you understand the world that you're moving through, um, and teenager, young adult books don't have to put on that <laughs> that pretense. There's like a a, a level of um, comfort comfort with confusion and understanding that the world is like a weird, wild place that we haven't figured out yet. Um, you know, I don't think we ever figure it out, right? We change, you know, our understanding of it changes over time, and when we become grown ups, we sort of make our peace with its weirdness and irrationality and horror um but we never but it never goes away it's always there um we just try that try more to pretend it's not yeah and i think that's really true with ya that there's a sense of like awe and honesty that that adult books don't have and it probably is because of that i know you know most of ya is about experiencing things for the first time or you know like you're saying it's okay for you to be confused or whatever whereas in adult books you know it's expected i guess that adults know what they're doing when really none of us really do (laughs) yeah exactly so let's talk about destroy all monsters specifically so in in this book uh the one of the main the main theme probably is trauma and it's told from two points of view. We have Ash, who is in our world, and then Solomon, who is in this fantasy world. And it's told as like a mashup of these two worlds that are like mirroring each other. So I'm just wondering why you chose to tackle trauma in that specific way with this genre mashup. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that um, for one thing, I love genre mashups, and I love um, I love stories that straddle multiple worlds and multiple realities. Um, there was a there's a great graphic novel, a comic book series called The Max, um, that was an MTV series in the '90s, briefly a, a cartoon. Yeah. Um, that's sort of about that of like these two characters who both experienced a trauma um, and one of whom lives in a very gritty and familiar version of our world and the other lives in a fantasy world. Um, and uh, I think that 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 allows for for not just having two different perspectives on, on trauma, um, but also two different ways of looking at the world and at how the world changes. Um, so, you know, I think that while Ash and Solomon both experience a trauma, the experience of it is much different for both of them. And, and um, you know, for Solomon, it's much more traumatic and much more a, a much more profound violation. Um, and so I think that, you know, that's, a, that's, that, that's sort of this, this challenge when it comes to, to mental health and substance abuse and trauma and things like that, where, you know, you, if, if you have a loved one who's experiencing it, you want to help them, um, but you're even if you experience something similar, it's not the same. Um, and bridging that gap between the world that they live in as a result of it and the world that you live in is really difficult. Um, and is and it's and it's, it's, it's essential, you know, if we want to if we want to support our loved ones, or if we want our loved ones to support us as we're going through something really difficult, we have to be able to bridge those two worlds. Um, but in, in my experience, it's it's really difficult to, to 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 get inside that and in many ways it's impossible and it doesn't need to be you know you don't you don't need to have experienced the same trauma or fully grasp it the way i mean ash is sort of like you know through the supernatural agency of the story and through the sort of like you know fun toolkit of speculative fiction we can we can have ash experience it um in a way that isn't possible for regular people to experience the, the trauma of their loved ones um, but I thought that having not only two different perspectives, but having people struggle to bridge the gap between those two perspectives is um, is is sort of like at the heart of surviving trauma and helping move past things like that. So um, that's sort of like a, a a metaphor of my real life of dealing with stuff to that I've that I've sort of made into uh, a reality and thanks to the magic of speculative fiction. Yeah, and I think another thing that's interesting is that Ash specifically is really trying to understand where Solomon is coming from and trying to, you know, see from his perspective. And then other people are just completely dismissive of it and say, oh, he's just nuts and, you know, needs to be in a. I don't know, asylum or something. Um, and yeah. so I think that that's really good as well, because when we experience trauma, that's what happens. You know, some people are really going to try and relate and and really want to help. And then other people are just totally dismissive of what you have to say. Yeah. Yeah. And it's and it's and it's also, you know, trying to help is a is a difficult it's a difficult thing and knowing what the right thing to do is. And, you know, often, you know, this is, this is something that you see a lot with issues of addiction um, is that, you know, the help that they want is not necessarily the help that they need. Right. Right. Um, you know, to, to really help someone often involves doing things that they will be curious with you for. And that will, you know, that they're, what they're asked, what they're asking for in the throes of their, of their, of their, uh, difficulty um, is probably not the best thing for them, and so Ash has to make difficult decisions. Just as if you're, um, 
you know, trying to get help from for a loved one who um, is, for whatever reason, not super able to, you know, assess what they what they need most. It, it requires difficult, uh, difficult action sometimes. Right. And another theme that I think comes up in this, but in a different way than it does in your other work, which is interesting to me, is violence. So in in a lot of the things that you write, violence shows up as a form of like revenge or resistance or retribution. That's throughout um, your short stories and your adult novel, Blackfish City, and even in The Art of Starving, um, violence sort of shows up in these ways. Whereas in this book, you explore violence through sort of the other side of it, like hate crimes and hurting people. And so I'm just curious as to why it seems that exploring this violence and different types of violence is important to you throughout different parts of your work. Yeah, no, that's a that's a great observation and question. I think that um, you know, violence is one of many human realities that horrifies me and fascinates me, and I can't look away from. Um, and that you know, just as I often am trying to think through issues of oppression um, and exploitation in my stories, um, because those are horrifying to me, but they're realities that that don't go away. Um, violence is something that obsesses me. Uh, you know, I'm a nonviolent person um, in my in my real in my day to day life in my in my practice as a social change activist. Um, but but you know, we're also surrounded by violence, and, and violence is everywhere. And I'm also you know I am also really compelled by violence. You know, I love martial arts. Um, I love you know I watch a lot of violent movies. I watch a lot of you know um, narratives where violence is enacted in different ways. You know, my favorite uh, TV show is Avatar The Last Airbender, where there's like these crazy battles um, uh, in using these sort of like supernatural tinged martial arts. Um, so I think that, you know, that's a fascinating thing. Like we are, there's like a level on which we are, um, there's like an animal level on which we are all sort of compelled by violence. There's this phenomena um, that's observed in like a lot of predators um, like killer whales and wolves that's called surplus killing, which is when um, they usually acting in a group um, or a pack uh, attack a prey animal and engage in slaughter that is far beyond what they have any capacity to ever eat. Um, and they just, you know, they, they kill a ton of, of creatures. And there's the, the way that scientists explain that is that that, you know, predators and, and carnivores um, and maybe all animals um, uh, uh, sort of evolve whatever, you know, life-sustaining activities sort of are engineered to be pleasurable, right? Um, or sort of biological imperatives are supposed to be pleasurable. And that when it comes to violence, there's like a pleasure to it. There's like a thrill that, that, that predators feel um, when, they, uh, when they hurt things and when they kill things and when they to get food um, that makes them effective killers and that they, in some cases, um, get overwhelmed by. So I think that that's sort of like a weird uh, phenomenon that I think we feel in ourselves um, uh, when we watch a horror movie or an action movie, um, when we watch, you know, uh, the Avengers and we watch, you know, things being being blown up and, and people being, uh, you know, villains being killed and, 
uh, all these things is like there's like a, a animal instinct for it, but that's at war with a human horror at it. Um, and so, uh, you know, just like I think that horror films ser- fulfill a function of helping us get get over fear or experience fear in a safe and circumscribed way, um, you know, narrative can can give us a safe way to make sense of violence. Um, but 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 I you know while you're while you're right that my a lot of my fiction does explore that from the angle of like um, you know re- retributive violence and getting revenge on people who hurt us. Um, you know, I, I don't want to just tell that story. I also want to look at, you know, the fact that violence is a real thing that has real consequences and that the solution to violence or the, like the smart solution is not more violence. Right. I think that's something that in the art of starving, um, is, is, uh, Matt's journey is like from a place of like thinking that the way to, um, survive a violent world is to become violent. Um, and his evolution is to realize that actually, no, you have to, um, you know, the way to make peace with a violent world is to uh, acknowledge that violence exists, but to realize that you can make a different choice. Sure. And I think that that's a lot the same in Destroy All Monsters, um, where, well, they not necessarily that they think that violence is the answer, but um, there are definitely parts in the book where they sort of think, like, should we, how should we fight this that's happening? And what's the best way to go about fighting it? And they come to that same conclusion that, you know, it's, it's, you, we don't have to fight this with more violence. Um, we, you know, we have to get to people before they become violent. And I thought that was really interesting, too. Thank you. <laughs> so, also, in this book, you use photography a lot. It's um, it's just one of the things that both of the main characters do. And in the novel, um, outside of it being really just an important part of their lives, I thought it was also interesting the way that these characters get to the truth through photography. And as you say in the book, it's the truth with a capital T. So why um, did you choose to use photography in that way to allow, especially Ash, to see the world in a different way? Yeah, I mean, I am myself a frustrated photographer. I mean, I'm not frustrated. I just am not, I'm not a professional <laughs> photographer. I'm just someone who really enjoys taking pictures. Um, and I hadn't realized this. My, my husband actually reminds me of this at the book launch for Destroy All Monsters in the Q&A. And I had like a moment of sudden epiphany in front of a big crowd of people, um, <laughs> uh, which is that my father was a photographer and he had a dark room. And, um, you know, I really I didn't I wouldn't say that I learned from him, but I certainly learned because of him. Um, and so I think that there's a there's a, a really like photography is a really special art to me. I think it has a lot of power. Um, I think that there's a there's a the accessibility of photography, especially now, um, enables us all to capture this. Like I think that when you when you photograph something, there's a level on which it's an act of love or of um, of of celebration. And and so maybe that's something like you know I was just in New Orleans having a wonderful time and we went to the swamp and I saw an alligator with a dragonfly on its face. And I was so like, it was such a beautiful thing. And I took this photograph as a, as a, as this sort of like expression of my love for the world, which I do love the world in spite of how horrible it is. Um, 
And I think that even when you're, you know, often you're photographing things you don't love, you're photographing injustice, you are um, photographing uh, things that are that are horrible. Um, there's still a level on which it's an act of love. You're photographing it because you hate it and you want it to go away or you want to expose it or you want to say to the world, like, here's something that is uh, is not okay and that you should pay attention to and that you should do something about. Um, so from, you know, that, 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 that aspect of the story and just draw monsters, uh, is, is sort of like my own photographic practice sort of, uh, handed over to two different characters so they can explore different aspects of it. Cool. And it's sort of a, a semi-random question. So in Solomon's sort of fantasy world, there are dinosaurs that people keep as pets. And I'm just curious as to why you threw dinosaurs in there. Oh, man. <laughs> uh, that's a great question. Uh, the answer is why don't I have dinosaurs in everything I write? <laughs> that's um, fair. I really love dinosaurs. I think they're really awesome. I think that... Um, the fact that that they were real is uh, one of those little things of like, how do you all not realize that the world is magic? That that every that you know that like it's it's incredible what you know. I like I'll look at the ocean, and be like, wow, the ocean that's incredible. That's it, that's it, that's magical. Um, and so dinosaurs are amazing, and I've always loved them. Um, my husband and I both uh, had childhood and contemporary and continued dinosaur obsessions. Um, and uh, we got married in a gorilla wedding at the Natural History Museum under the T-Rex skeleton. That's amazing. Uh, so I just think they're awesome. I love monsters. Um, they're the best monsters that ever were, and they're real. So, um, you know, I mean, I also think that, you know, and this is something my agent told me when I was uh, talking to him about the, the book that would become Destroy All Monsters, is that you know, there's a level on which dinosaurs are uh, something children are obsessed with. They're not so much something that young adults are into. They're one of those things, at least this was my experience, I think it's, it's not unique, that you're obsessed with when you're a teenager and you, I mean, when you're a, a child, and then when you're a teenager, you're like too cool for it because that's kid stuff. Um, so you put the dinosaur toys away, but then you um, maybe uh, reach a place later where you're like, oh no, dinosaurs are amazing. Why did I put this toy away? I want to play with my dinosaur toys some more. Um, so I think that in that respect, it made sense for this story where, um, you know, Solomon is uh, in many ways a teenager, but in many ways a child or, or someone whose growth uh, was was stunted by trauma. Uh, and so he, his obsession with dinosaurs and this idea that dinosaurs are, are real in this world where there's lots of kinds of monsters um, is, uh, is just another way of, of expressing that. Yeah, and the little old lady with the velociraptor on the leash, I know she's like a very background character, but she shows up a couple of times throughout the book. And every time I see, I saw her, I was like, oh, I want a velociraptor on a leash. This is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, she's actually, um, you know, I, I'd like to say that all of my stuff takes place in a shared universe. Um uh, and that there's little like cameos from characters that pop up from story to story and novel to novel. Mm -hmm. So she's actually been in a couple of my 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 things. Not not always um, with a um, Velociraptor. Um, there's a in I have a story of the new anthology of People's Future of the United States 
Um, and the story is called It Was Saturday Night, I Guess That Makes It All Right. And there's a woman with a shopping cart who makes a brief appearance. Um, so, so yeah, she, she, you have not seen the last of her. Awesome. Um, the the to- Velociraptor. Um, I don't know what that. I don't know what that story is yet, but I'm sure I'll tell it. Amazing. Um, yeah, and to make an Avatar reference, she reminds me of the the cabbage cart guy who just keeps showing up. Yeah, um, sort exactly. of in the background. <laughs> exactly. We should all we should all aspire to uh, cabbage cabbage guy status, um, and especially because you know, not only like you know, okay, a, a comic relief sort of like recurrent backdrop. Um, is great and, and the show does it really well. Um, but then, you know, in the sequel series, Legend of Korra, we see that he started up a, you know, he, he sort of, his business grew and he has the Cabbage Corporation. Yeah. Um, and so even though he just has like one scene, um, you know, you can, you know, small background characters can, can have big storytelling impact. Absolutely. So what's your favorite dinosaur? Um, I like them all, but I think... Um, while the T-Rex has a, you know, a, a kind of huge cultural ref- resonance that um, I really respond to and really dig, like, like I know there are theropods that were bigger and scarier and whatever, but like, you know, you can't, like the T-Rex's sort of role um, and, and, and the extent to which it's captured the popular imagination is, is, uh, is unique and very special. Um, so I think that that's sort of like the acknowledged king of the dinosaur world in my heart. But the Allosaurus is my favorite um, because they were, you know, they're smaller, but they had three fingers on their hands and they were, they had functional arms. You know, the T-Rex's arms are kind of like derpy and uh, non-functional. Um, so the Allosaurus, I thought, was probably a smarter, more complex um, uh, carnivore Um uh, so, so I think I think that one has a special place in my heart. That's that's the one that's tattooed on my arm. Awesome. I, I, got, I get a tattoo for every novel, and the tattoo for Destroy All Monsters was an Allosaurus. That's awesome. So, one more question in the same vein: If you could have any magical power, what would it be? Um, or like superpower? I would. I this is definitely something that I have already thought about a lot. <laughs> uh, I would love to be able to teleport. I love traveling. I love being different places, but I hate traveling. <laughs> you know, like I hate yes. going to places. I like being in places. So if I could snap my fingers and be in Bangkok right now, I would totally do it. If I could go to Delhi, if I could go to Reykjavik, um, you know, if I could just go anywhere, anytime I wanted and get really good food or see really cool stuff, um, I would totally do that. Um, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't need to be able to like, um, you know, stop the flow of rivers or burn down, um, my enemies. Although lately, every time I watch the news, I want to burn down lots of things. Um, (laughs) but teleportation, I think is like a nice chill superpower where you don't need to, um, you know, feel obligated to destroy anything. I always also say teleportation. What about you? I always say teleportation, too. That's my thing. Yeah, same. Because I also like to travel, but I hate the act of traveling. I just like being in a place, too. So for pretty much the same exact reasons that you said, I always say teleportation. Although I got to say, I just just got a TSA pre-check, which has totally changed my life. Right? It's amazing. 
it's amazing. I rolled up at the New Orleans airport and was through security in three minutes. It's crazy. I mean, sometimes it doesn't work out like that. And especially New York airports are such a crap show that, uh, you know, you can still often spend a long time waiting, even in the TSA pre-check line. But it has made a big difference in how stressed out I get about traveling. Totally worth it. (laughs) So where can people find you and your work if they want to see or hear more from you? Well, my website, samjmiller.com, has links to all of my uh, my social media presences and my novels and all the places that you could buy them. Um, and I also have tons of my short stories have been published, have either been published for free um, or have made available on, online for free on my website. So if you go to samjmiller.com slash stories, um, there's tons of stories of mine that you can read um, and get a sense for, for my writing if you're, if you're not ready to co- make the big commitment to, uh, to buying a novel or getting it out of the library. Um, but, but yeah, uh, that, my website is the best place to start, and I'm on Twitter at SentenceBender, and I'm on Instagram at Sam.J.Miller. And I spend way too much time on those places. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for talking to me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. This was tons of fun. And I really appreciate the opportunity to chat with you. Yes, it was awesome. I appreciate it. Yeah, I I identify a lot with the T-Rex because I also have very short arms that are mostly useless. (laughs) And yet. And yet you are formidable, you know? (laughs) That's true. (laughs) The T-Rex is an inspiration to us all. um, (laughs) You can be a badass even if, you know, maybe maybe people make fun of you. (laughs) Or maybe you wish you looked a little different. Land Before Time was my jam when I was a child, so. Yeah. Dinosaurs. a good one. It's a very good one, although sad. Um, Yeah. (laughs) So thanks, Sam. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. That was Sam J. Miller, author of the new young adult novel, Destroy All Monsters. You've been listening to The Writers' Forum, a weekly production of WRBH. You can catch our show every Thursday at 3 p.m. and again on Sundays at 8.30 a.m. This show and all of WRBH's programs, including my podcast, Novel Ideas, can be found on our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash WRBH Reading Radio as well as on iTunes and Google Podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Candace Huber. Until next time.